are thankful for this book that you've given to us. Thank you for the many mediums that we have to, to read it and study it and uh, get to know you better. Uh, whether it's a printed page that's been around for centuries and centuries or more modern uh, ways to do it on digital devices, computers, etc., etc. We're just thankful that we have the Word of God, that, that uh, you still speak through it. You're still speaking, not adding new revelation. It's completed, but you're still speaking a living, powerful message to, to us. And we pray that we will give it the attention that we should, that we will have ears ready to hear what the Spirit has to say and hearts that are soft and ready to receive what the Spirit has for us. So help us, each one, to that end and help me, as one who will speak it forth, to do so with clarity and conviction to the glory of your name. Amen. So let's read our text that we started Last week, and we're continuing today, we will not finish it today, and then there will be a slight pause while I do some recovering from knee replacement surgery this week, Lord willing. We are in Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, I will read. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any, anything worthy of praise, think on, about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And I did kind of a brief review almost of the book last week and how it ties into this last section. So I'm not going to do that again. Just a reminder that Paul's giving some final exhortations, final imperatives, final commands, final entreaties. Uh, There are a lot of different terms that you could use for it, but it's kind of a list of commands that he gives them, kind of leaving them with these thoughts. Now, he's not done with the letter. He's going to continue on in verse 10 through the end of the chapter. But these are his final exhortations. And it's kind of like a parent who goes away and gives a list of things. Now, while we're gone, make sure you take out the garbage and brush your teeth and, you know, don't, don't fight and blah, 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 blah. And that's what the kids are thinking. Blah, 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 blah. 
And the parents are very serious about it. It's like, you need to remember these things. I, I give you these things, they're important. And that's what Paul's doing. And, and we should never come to a passage like this and think, and blah, 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 blah. And, and in fact, we shouldn't just come to a passage like this and how fast can I read through it? I'm almost at the end of the book of Philippians. Yeah, get in. Then I can go on to Colossians. And no, we, should, we should read it with pause and musing and meditation and, and thoughtfulness. And, and so we slow it down quite a bit. It didn't take long for Paul to write it. It should take quite a bit of time for us to read it, to study it, to understand it, and to glean from it what God has for us. So there is this list. I don't have them numbered. I just have them listed on your sermon insert. If if you don't have a sermon insert and you want one, uh, there is some on this table right back there. If you you need one, raise your hand and uh, someone will get up and pass those to you. It's just uh, each one of these phrases is uh, the commands that he gives. And the first one is the one we looked at last week, which was to stand firm or to stand fast in the Lord. And that was in verse 1. After he lists wonderful adjectives and nouns describing his thoughts about the believers there in Philippi, that they were brothers, that he... He absolutely loved them. He said that twice, uh, once at the beginning and once at the end of that verse. He loved them deeply and, and longed to see them again. He considered them as the joy, the joy in ministry. It was like it filled his heart with such wonderful thoughts as he thought of them. And, and he thought of them as a crown, like a crown of ministry, a reward that the Lord had given him. But the command was pretty simple. Stand firm in the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable. You know, take a stand. And this is a repeated uh, refrain, not only in all of Paul's epistles, but here in Philippians as well. He had said it in chapter 1, verse 27, stand firm. And there was, particularly in the face of persecution, it's coming your way. You live in a pagan world, it's coming your way. We should know that, right? I think we're feeling it more and more every day, every week, as the world goes more and more pagan. Our nation goes more and more pagan. We feel the brunt of that. We feel the attacks. And we need to take a stand. Here in this verse, I think it's more in the context of the false teachers that he's concerned with, that he has addressed in chapter 3 twice, at the beginning of chapter 3, and then towards the end of the of the chapter, he warned them more than once in this uh, epistle to watch out for these evil, false teachers. They have certain characteristics, and you can tell not just by their words, but by their life that they're false, that they're deceivers, and you need to avoid them. Instead, you need to follow the example, Paul says, like me, follow my example. That's what he did in chapter 3, verse 17. Follow my example, and others like me. Uh, leadership in the church, you see that he's kind of stressing the same thing in what we just read when he got down to the end. He says, the things that you learned and heard and saw in me, practice these things. Not just me, it's not like he had a big head about it, but he mentions others in this section, doesn't he? Clement and other fellow workers, the true companion. So it's all about 
here following the right example. Avoid the false teachers and, and uh, you know, follow the good example. So this, this, this theme is kind of running all the way from the beginning of chapter 3 through these commands um, about uh, following the right examples. So stand firm. Where do we stand? In the Lord. <laughs> right? That's where we need to stand. By the way, you know, a lot of people are making lots, lots of focus on stand firm in the Constitution of the United States of America. I, I love the Constitution of the United States of America. I'm glad for it. Yeah. There are many attacks against it. That isn't where we need to stand firm. Man, that, it's a wonderful document. This grand experiment, as they describe, you know, of this republic. Wonderful. But we need to stand firm in the Lord. He never changes. Constitutions and plans and politics and all of that is constantly changing. The sexual revolution, we, we don't even know what to call someone anymore because it's constantly changing. Do I call them he, she, their, them? You know, it's constantly changing. No, no, our Lord doesn't change. So stand in the Lord, right? And the one who saved you, the one that we were singing about, the one that we've remembered, stand in him. Now, the second command is live in unity. I know some of you like to fill out the blanks before I ever get to them. And, and that's okay. And if, you know, if you get one wrong, you can always scratch it out and put the right word in. And these are just really tools to help us remember anyway. I mean, just read the verses. The commands are there. It doesn't take a lot of genius. But uh, live in unity. That's verse 2 and 3. Let me read that again. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That's the main command. Agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So after this general exhortation, and that's what the first one is, stand firm in the Lord, he gets down to some specifics of how to do that, how to work that out. What does it look like to stand firm in the Lord? And one of the things that is required to stand firm in the Lord is to live in unity. So he urges two women who are members of the church in Philippi to have the, the same mindset, to have the same focus on, on the same goals. And, and the reason is because they have a, bond, a common bond in Christ. But knowing that this could be difficult because of the, the nature of the conflict, he, he then encourages another person, right? Not named in the text, but just referred to as true companion. Uh, he encourages that person to help these women overcome whatever the conflict was, to, to be resolved, to be reconciled with one another. So as I thought through this, that the main thing that we must see from this command is that no matter, no matter how doctrinally sound the church may be, right? I hope that we are. But no matter how doctrinally sound the church may be, disunity 
can rob the church of its power, and it can destroy its effectiveness in reaching out with the gospel. This letter, that's all about reaching out with the gospel. It's the progress of the gospel. That's the primary theme of this epistle. And he's brought up disunity or unity on the positive side multiple times, multiple times, and he does so here again. Now, the earnestness of this appeal to these two women is seen in the fact that Paul uses the, the same word, entreat, you might have urge, uh, encourage, exhort. Uh, it's, a, it's a broad word, parakaleo, is to be called alongside someone. And that's the word that's used here. It's the same word, that essential root word that's used of the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, one who is called alongside of us. And so this word is used here in a more serious entreating, exhortation, you know, command, if you will, um, to, to, to deal with this uh, problem. But the fact that he uses the verb twice, he says, I urge Yodia, I urge Syntyche, I entreat, I admonish, I exhort Yodia and Syntyche to agree, agree. And, and I think the reason that he does it this way, instead of just writing, I exhort Yodia and Syntyche, he has the verb with both of them, he's emphasizing that this is an apostolic directive that he's giving uh, to each of them. You know, the way that people are when they're in conflict, you know, maybe you have children or you, have, you can remember with your children and two of them were fighting and you say, um, Isha and Megan, uh, or I'm, I'm telling you, Isha and Megan, you know, to shape up. And Isha might think, how come she's always telling me this but not Megan? I'm telling Isha, you know, comes first, and Megan's thinking, it's like, huh? Not really, I mean, I'm in it because I'm in it, but it's not really telling me. So he's, he's making the point. I'm speaking to both of you equally, apostolically, giving you a directive to follow that this issue, whatever it is, must be dealt with. Now, the truth is, if it were a matter of doctrinal dispute, you know, error, uh, versus truth. It's unlikely that Paul would have given this instruction in this manner. He would have explained who's right and who's wrong, who's, who's got the truth and who's following the, you know, the deceptions of the false teachers. I don't think it's doctrinal at all. This, this may be a matter of, uh, you know, matters regarding personal conscience. You know, like in Romans 14 and 15, People that are, you know, disagreeing on like special days and do you have to eat certain foods and should you play games or can you play cards or is dancing okay or what kind of music you listen to. You know, those things like that that are not specifically addressed in the scripture. Not that there isn't scripture that addresses those things, but it's not specifically addressed and so it's left up to a matter of personal conscience. It's like... Most people in the church here know, for me, playing games, no. I don't play board games, card games. 
And there's a reason. It's a personal conscience thing. That I know my weakness. And I know that when I engage in those kind of activities, I get, I move from being a compassionate person to a competitive freak. I become ugly. It's like, well, stop being ugly. I'm sorry, this is it. This is ugly. If it's ugly, it's ugly. You can't change. I know myself. I could tell myself all day long, just take it easy. It's just a game. It's just, we're just having fun. No, we're not. For me, it's like win at all costs. And if I got to hurt you in the process, I'll do it. So what do I do? I avoid playing games. But I judge no one in playing games. I, I kind of have a good time listening to the other people who are almost as competitive as me. Dad, mom's cheating. My mom says, your daughter's cheating. I was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not in that mess, you know. Personal religious conviction or opinion, that kind of thing. Pastor Greg did such a great job weeks ago in describing the difference between truth and opinion and conviction, right? And this isn't the truth issue, this is the opinion, the conviction, the personal conscience issues that he is most likely addressing. Or, or it could just be that there was a personality conflict going on. You know, Yodio was type A and Sintiki just felt like she was always being run over by her, you know. One was charismatic and aggressive and the other was... You know, it's like, I, I'm always, I'm, I'm, I, I always feel like I'm beat down. It could be something even as that. Do you notice that Paul didn't say what it is? He, he, he doesn't say. Did he know? I think he absolutely knew. Because he's addressing women that he had received a report about in Rome. Right? whether that was Epaphroditus who had been sent by the church to minister to him while he was in prison. And he, hey, Brother Paul, just so that you know, there's a couple of women in the church. I mean, they've been fighting for a while. Maybe you could write you know, to them. Now, the specifics aren't mentioned. Paul probably knew. Certainly everyone in the church knew. Now, how do I know that? Well, because Paul writes a letter, and in the letter that is to be read by the whole church, in front of the whole church, he says, I exhort Yodia, and I exhort Syntyche to think the same thing, to agree. That's being called out. That's being put on the carpet, isn't it? Let's face it, I mean, sometimes it takes that kind of tough love. And he's willing to, to, to give it. Um, now, who are these women? They're Yodia and Syntyche. Or, as I've referred to them in the past, because of the conflict that was going on and the effects of it, I refer to them as odious and stinky. <laughs> and as long as they were not in agreement, that's what they are in my thinking. Their sinfulness, their treatment of one another stinks. It's offensive to God because of the effect that it's having on the church. So, 
it's clear that everyone in the church knew about it because otherwise Paul wouldn't have written putting their names in, you know, to it. So everyone knows, everyone probably when the letter's read, they look over at Odious and Stinky, who are probably sitting on opposite sides of the room. You know, they give them that look, it's like, do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear what he's saying? Which is oftentimes the case, you know, when sometimes we ought to be thinking, saying, like, hmm, I wonder if I'm doing the same thing. Maybe I'm odious and stinky too. But in writing to resolve the problem, Paul identifies a process that can involve either one or two uh, steps, at least in the text. I would add a third one to it, but in the text, he, he, he says the first step is for Yodia and Syntyche to address the problem themselves and come to reconciliation. That's what he's saying, right? I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree, to agree, to think the same thing, to have the same view about what's important and what is not. And in fact, the, the word that's translated in the ESV as agree, and it may be in your translation to think the same thing or something like that, it's the word that Paul has used several times throughout the letter, 127, 2, 3, and 5, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 and 19, chapter 4, uh, here and in verse 10. It's the word for now, and it is a word that means more than simply think the same thing. That's the basic way it would be translated, but it's more than that. This is the word that is talking about one's disposition, one's attitude, one's view of life. So it's you know kind of a big word. He's, he used it in chapter 3 as he's uh, talking about his own example, and others like him, and how they, uh, they set the example of the way that people ought to think about this life and the coming life and so on. So this is the same word. It's translated as agree in the ESV here, but it's the big word that he uses throughout the letter that is always in the, in the context of unity. Agreeing, Right? Agreeing, thinking the same thing, having this, the right attitude, the, let your focus be correct. So one thing we have to understand when, when Paul, Paul says this to them, he's not commanding that these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, nor is he commanding believers today or any time during the church age to always have the exact same thoughts on, uh, about the things of the Lord, about what's right or would be best place to do things or whatever. You don't always have to think the same things. He's not saying that. That, would, that kind of understanding would negate what he says elsewhere regarding matters of personal conscience, like in Romans 14. And he, and he goes through that and says, don't let the strong judge the weak, and don't let the weak judge the strong, because each one's going to stand before the Lord. You, you have your own view on special days and foods and you know things like that. Don't be attacking each other. This is the same kind of idea, right? It's the same idea. We're, the, 
Think the same thing. I'm going to stand before the Lord. You're going to stand before the Lord. We'll give an account to him. But we'll stand there together because we are in the same family. So, you know, move that direction, he's telling them. And this word is particularly being used in relation to the unity of, of the believers. His, his frequent commands to unity, which, you know, you can see in Ephesians. That's why Christ died, to make people who were opposite and enemies of one another, to, to bring them into one body. And in Ephesians 4, he says, let's, let's, you know, be diligent to keep the unity of the body and, you know, that the Spirit has made. Let's, let's do that. It's throughout his epistles, unity. And he uses this word here. And basically what he's saying is that believers would so surrender themselves to the Lord that it would cause them to live in harmony with one another, even when they disagree about matters of opinion and conscience, about, you know, things that are not specifically addressed in Scripture. Paul knew that if both of them, Yodia and Sinski, or Odius and Stinky, you know, were to get right with the Lord then they would get right with one another. Isn't that what he's saying? I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you women. Get yourself right with the Lord, and, and then you, you'll be right with each other. I, I, I was saying that about those two women, not all of you women, because that would apply to all of you women and all of us men. Are we allowed to say that now? Women, men, all of you people. So stupid. Okay. <laughs> That's my opinion and conviction that I was just giving you there. But Paul understood human nature well, right? And so he knew that it could be difficult for Yodia and Sintiki to work out their disagreements on their own. And for that reason, he adds a second step to the process. Like, if that doesn't work, then I'm calling on you, true companion. The help of a third party, right? To come alongside of them. And, and, the, and it's interesting, the word uh, that's translated as true companion here was, it was an uncommon uh, word. And it had the meaning of stand together with a common yoke. So you think of a yoke, not a lot of people even know what a yoke is today. They think it's an egg. But, you know, if you grew up on the farm, you probably knew what a yoke was. Or if you, you know, watched any old Western movies, you would know what a yoke was. Uh, you know, a yoke was made out of metal or made out of wood that would connect two creatures together, whether that was oxen or horses, think of a wagon train, and the horses are yoked together so that they run together, they gait together, so that's the smoothest, most beneficial ride for those that are in the wagon. And that is the, the word that he's using here of this person who he sees as a true yoke companion. I think he's thinking, he was a true yoke companion with me. He labored in the Lord with me. But he's also a true companion to these ladies. If he will come alongside of them and try to yoke them together in the Lord so that they are in agreement, right? Um, 
Was, this was a word that referred to a companion or a partner or especially when there were a couple of people, like in marriage. Think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, uh, unbeliever and believers should not be yoked together, right? What does is, what is the temple of God and the temple of Belial have in common? What does righteous people and unrighteous people have to do? What does Christ have to do with the devil and what does the believer, in a sense, have to do with the unbeliever in the sense of they're not thinking the same way about life? Amen. Their goals are different. Their focus are different. And that's commonly just focuses on, on marriage, right? It's like you shouldn't be marrying an unbeliever if you're a believer. And, of course, a lot of people disengage from that command, and oftentimes they face difficulties because of it. But it's much broader than that. It's a business thing as well. If you're a believer and you're an entrepreneur, you want to start a business, don't go yoke yourself to an unbeliever whose total goal in life is to get rich. When your riches are in heaven. Right? They want to serve themselves. You want to serve Christ. So this is the idea, but this is making it clear what he's saying. You guys got to start thinking alike have this get your focus back on track now we don't know who this common uh, or true companion was he's not mentioned either it's interesting that the problem is not mentioned the true companion is not named and yet the truth is so absolutely clear this is about unity live in unity and and he's he's speaking this way because of the the impact on the church and therefore the gospel. It's not just the two women. The two women in their conflict are affecting everyone in the church. That's why they're named in the letter and why it's addressed in that way. And of course, we should realize that if the church is facing disunity, tension, conflict, argumentation, over things that are not a matter of doctrine, right or wrong, that kind of thing, then it's drastically going to distract us from our mission of sharing the gospel. And who would want to believe in a gospel where they see people fighting? How's that good? Right? So, he's given them a plan. Now, I would add to that plan what Jesus added to it. If, if they won't listen to you, true companion, then... Just get in front of the whole church and let the whole church say, you get right with one another or you get out of here. Right? That's what Jesus said and that's what Paul said elsewhere as well. It's kind of a disciplinary process. And that's what he's doing here in a very first, first hit at it. He's bringing some you know, discipline into the church. So, Paul states the reason very clearly that they should resolve their conflict. First, he identifies that there were Christian sisters. That's implied. I'll explain that in a moment. And second, that they labored with him, with Paul, side by side in the work of the gospel. That means when he was in Philippi, they connected, with, they yoked themselves to him in the ministry of the gospel. Now, I say it's implied that they were sisters because they had yoked themselves 
to Paul in the labor of the gospel, right? If they weren't Christian sisters, they wouldn't have been proclaiming the gospel with him. So that's implied. But the word that he uses here for labored side by side, this is a just a compound word. But the second part of the word, we get the, the English word athlete from. Now, that didn't always refer to athletes. What it actually referred to was um, toiling together with someone in a struggle implying opposition or competition. So you can see that in athletic stuff, certainly. But here is, hey, join together in the agonizing effort of the gospel. They had done that in the past. And he's reminding them of that. As sisters in God's family, they had worked side by side with Paul, with Clement, and others that are unnamed in the, you know, in the church, in the struggle to proclaim the gospel in the pagan city of Philippi. Remember when Paul went there with the gospel, there wasn't, there wasn't even a Jewish synagogue. They didn't even have anything going on in that city where a one true God message was being proclaimed. And he got there and he went down to the river where there was Lydia and some other people gathered together because they didn't have a synagogue and he preached the gospel and then boom, the gospel opened up in that city. And, And they had been part of that labor and he's reminding them of that. I think that's good for us if we're a true companion with, with people that we see in conflict with one another. To try to take them back to when they were laboring side by side. When they have a common focus, right? Isn't that what happens? We lose our focus and we get distracted and we start pulling that way and the other person's pulling that way. And it's a battle because you're yoked together in the Lord. But you feel the conflict, you feel the tension, it's rubbing on your neck and you get irritated and then you yell and you call names and, you know, that kind of stuff. And he's reminded them, man, you used to walk right in pace with me and others and proclaiming the gospel. Beautiful, beautiful. Lastly, Paul mentions in this command that these women and others who had labored in the gospel had their names written in the book of life. Don't you love that? The book of life. And that's a reference to a register that is kept by God where names are recorded. And that, that could be names of the redeemed or it could be the names of everybody. Uh, I'll explain this a little bit more just as like a, a brief little excursus on a Bible study thing uh, where it talks about the book of life in the scripture. Some people think everyone's name is written in the book and at some point their names are blotted out if they don't believe, if they don't repent and trust in the Lord. And others think, no, only the names of the redeemed are recorded in the book, right? So let's see what the scripture actually says. Want to do that? Yes, Yes, you do. I know you do. So uh, I'll just mention most of the reference of this. Um, not everyone says book of life, but it's all addressing the same thing. So Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two, Moses is praying for God to forgive the children of Israel for their rebellion, right? And he says, if you will not forgive their sin, 
but if not, so if you will forgive their sin, this, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Man, that's a real heart for people that were loved. That Paul kind of expressed the same thing in, in uh, Romans 10. He says, uh, I, I, I long for the children of Israel to no longer trust in the law, but to trust in the Lord. If it were, if it were necessary, I'd even give up my own salvation that they would believe. That's what Moses is saying. God, please forgive them. If you won't, then just blot me out with them. Shows his heart was not only toward God, but it was towards the people that he was leading. In Psalm 69 and verse 28, now this Psalm, David is talking about the people that were persecuting him, attacking him, coming after him, trying to bring him down. And in verse 28, it says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So there it sounds like, okay, there's a book of the living. Everyone's name is in there, and and your name may be blotted out. If you're redeemed or righteous, you're left in. In Daniel chapter 12, it says in verse 1, at that time, it's a reference to tribulation, the end of age, at that time shall arise Michael, that is the archangel Michael, the great prince over, who has charge over your people. That would be over the Jewish people. And there should be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. So this is like you read in Revelation when you read in Daniel 12. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. It's kind of hard to tell there, but you might think, only the redeemed, only the righteous are written in the book. Uh, Luke 10, going to the New Testament, Luke 10, Jesus is, has sent the apostles out to go into various cities to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, etc., etc. They come back, and man, they are so excited, and they say, oh man, even the demons are listening to us now, and we're able to, you know, cast them out of people, and it's so exciting, Lord, what you've given to us. And Jesus says to them in verse 20, Luke 10, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then the rest of these are in the book of Revelation, last book of our Bible, Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is speaking to one of the churches. And he says, the one who conquers will be, verse 5, Revelation 3, 5, the one who conquers will be clothed, thus, in white garments. That's, that's picturesque of the, of the righteousness of Christ, right? White garments, our sins are white as snow. And, and I will never blot out his or her name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There again, it sounds like everyone's name is written in it, but some names are blotted out. Revelation 13 and verse 8 says, And all who dwell on the, uh, on the earth will worship it. So this is a reference to worship of the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, etc. And those who dwell on the earth is the technical phrase in Revelation of referring to unbelievers who follow after the Antichrist. 
He says, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And there it almost sounds like their names were never entered. You're, you're wondering, is he going to tell us what it really is? I'm just reading you the scripture. Revelation 20 and verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the great white throne, final judgment of the wicked and Satan and et cetera, et cetera. And then one more. Revelation 21 verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it into, you know, the eternal with, with the Lord. They will never enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So which is it? Yes. My own understanding, when I put all those together, is everyone's name is in the book. And some names are blotted out because of their rejection of God and the gospel and so on. But it doesn't really matter which is which. They're, they're, they're both recorded. There's, like, there's a book. That's what's important. There's a book. And those names that are written in the book at the end, at judgment, get to enter into the presence of the Lord, into his you know, eternal kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. And those that are not in the book at the end, they, they go the other place, the lake of fire, the second death, the eternal separation from the glory of God and the majesty of his power. So there's really only one valid question to ask after reading all those. Is your name in the book of life? Yes. yes. Do you know if your name is written in the book of life? Or will you discover, you know, at the judgment that your name is blotted out because you never truly repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the free gift of eternal life that he offers. Now, it should be noted that you don't need to wait for the judgment, you know, the day of judgment, to be certain whether your name is written in the book or not. That's, this is a beautiful thing because you could read some of those and think, oh man, and get to the judgment, and it's going to be flipping through the pages, and, and alphabetical, no doubt, and then it's like, Spencer Steamer, not mentioned? Could you go back? And, I, I'm, you know, it's not like that. We can be confident right now that our names are written in the book of life, because those that are written in the book of life that remain in the book of life for all time are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Hopefully you're confident that your name is there and will remain there forever and ever. Now, kind of concluding this command, we'll stop here in just a moment. Uh, we'll have to get back to these in a few weeks, whenever I can get on my feet again, I guess. Uh, John MacArthur says something that I thought was very good. Tying unity together with, with this whole command, you know, uh, live in unity, you know, everyone who's, who's in the book of life, you know, be unified in the here and now. But he writes, loving unity in the fellowship of believers creates an environment of stability. 
But discord leaves the church collectively and its members individually vulnerable and unstable. How true that is. And how we have felt that over the year and a half. I want you to know, Pastor Tom and I went to a luncheon a week and a half ago over at Grace Christian Schools for pastors. And as we sat around the table after the music and stuff, that was a focus of the conversation. I probably mentioned this last week. That was a focus how COVID has impacted unity in the church. We've felt it. We're a small body, so we felt it more. Still feeling it. But whether small or large, churches have felt the disunity over a, a, a virus. And have not stood firm in the Lord. They've maybe stood firm in their opinions and convictions about politi- political positions, about face masks, about vaccines, all of that. I mean, we're just inundated with that stuff day in and day out. It's not ending. Who knows when or if it will ever end. But as a reminder, as we go through a passage like this, that we are to stand firm in the Lord. And we are to live in unity in the Lord. Not in a political persuasion. God's not going to, when you get to, it's like, oh, you're not in the book of life because you're a Democrat. Oh, come on in. You you were part of the conservative right there in America. Come on in. Come on down. No, God's not interested in that. He's interested in one thing. It's like our unified relationship in the Lord, bringing glory to our Savior, and that being seen as we go out and witness in the world in which we live. So if the church is to stand fast in the Lord, they, they must live in unity. We must live in unity. And it only makes sense, if come down to it, it only makes sense for the church to live in unity in the here and now because we're going to live in unity forever and ever. Right? It's like, we're not going to get to heaven and say, come on, you go in your corner. I got my own little corner of glory land. Are we going to do that? No, we're all going to be together and we're going to hug and we're going to love on one another and we're going to love Jesus equally and it's like, no more fighting. No more fighting. That's one of the beauties of heaven. And we'll see that this very idea quite easily transitions into the next of Paul's final exhortations, which we'll take up next time I'm able to be up here in preaching. Do you know, Lord? Are you standing firm in the Lord? I hope so. I hope so. Are you seeking to live in unity? Keep the unity of the body? The bond of peace? This brings glory to God if we do this. So, Lord, we are so thankful for the gospel. This beautiful message about forgiveness of sinners. 
This message that you had planned before Adam was placed in the garden, before you even said, let there be light or anything else, you already had this plan. You knew what would happen, and you knew the only way to resolve it would be for you to send your son into the world. He was prophesied and seen throughout the Old Testament by types and pictures and shadows. But when he came, he was the, he was the substance. He was the real deal. And because of him coming and making you know known to us, then we, we've been able to see ourselves more clearly by looking at our lives in relation to him. Thank you that you made it known that we needed a Savior, that we were separated from you, we were enemies, irreconcilable and in human terms. We needed to be forgiven, justified, reconciled. You needed to be propitiated. Your wrath needed to be satisfied. Thank you that Jesus did that when he hung on the cross and said it is finished. Satisfaction was was complete. So thank you for the gospel. Thank you how it has brought even a small group like us, brought a, a collection of people together that otherwise might not be together. Maybe wouldn't have common common things, but we have the most important thing that holds us together. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for the gospel. Help us to be faithful in spreading it. Thank you, too, for the food that you've provided for us today and the work that has gone into that by servants wanting to minister to the body. Thank you for you providing all that we need for life and godliness, both physical and spiritual. We give you all praise and glory and honor. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen.